Well, good morning and welcome. We're so glad that you're here. I also want to just wish a happy Mother's Day to each of you. Um, I know that a day like today, some are rejoicing, and if you are, we rejoice with you. Some find yourself even grieving, and if you are, we grieve with you. And uh, we're just thankful for this day and this opportunity to reflect and to remember. Um, you know, Mother's Day, Father's Day are always interesting for parents with young kids because the schools usually have them generate some sort of uh, craft which reveals how much they actually know about you or what they think they know about you. <clears throat> and uh, my, my wife got something from our eight-year-old Madeline, and uh, it was a bunch of questions about mom, and one of the questions was, what is mommy great at? And Maddie wrote down, mommy is great at karate, <laughs> which she's never done. She's never taken karate. Um, I bet she's great at it, but she's never done it, um, which is better than last Father's Day, where in church, she wrote down, daddy laughs when he punches me in the stomach. <laughs> we sound like a very violent home. <clears throat> So, uh, happy Mother's Day. Um, just before we jump in, if you want to open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2, just before we jump into this passage, I want to mention that just a month away is our church picnic. We do it early in the summer so that we can all still go before everybody takes off on vacations and travels. Uh, so we're going to do it Sunday, June 12th. What we do on that Sunday is we have two services as usual, but it's at 9 and it's at 10. So they're much shorter and they're closer together and they're done by 11. And that allows all of us to head up to Oneida Shores where we reserve two pavilions, two shelters that are nearby each other. We can see each other this year. Last year, we kind of couldn't see each other, but this year we can. And uh, you actually should register for this. It helps us to be prepared. And uh, we provide a lot of the food. You can bring some side dishes. There's an ice cream truck coming. There's games for kids. It's one of my favorite days of the year. And it's the opportunity for our church, which is often split on Sundays, to actually get together. And I remember last year when we did this, people who were newer were looking around going, who are these people? They all are part of this church also. And so uh, make sure that if you're in town that you are able to join us for that church picnic. Well, this morning we are in the third week of our series through the book of Ruth. And a quick recap, so far the main characters are Ruth and Naomi, who are both widows. They've returned to Bethlehem. And Naomi comes home with the pain of having lost her husband and her two sons while they lived in Moab. And she also has returned with this sense in her heart that God is against her, that God has raised his arm against her. And now Ruth, who is Naomi's daughter-in-law, is a foreigner because she's a Moabite. She's a foreigner in Judah, and neither has much reason for hope. And we get to Ruth 2, and the story begins to shift. Beginning in verse 1, it says that Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. So into the story of Ruth, enter Boaz. Now, this is not a story of a Prince Charming, uh, sort of a knight in white armor, you know, swooping in and rescuing the day, uh, rescuing this hopeless woman. That's not what this is about. We will learn that Boaz is a worthy man, but there's a few other key factors that we have to notice in this story. All right, three things I want us to notice. The first thing is this, Israel's life-giving law. 
There was a law that God had instituted with his people that mandated provision for the poor and for the destitute, for the foreigner, for the refugee. In Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, this is the law. This is how it reads. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. In other words, don't go back and get the things you didn't get the first time through. Rather, leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And this, this law is also repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And so there is a law that Israel follows that has a big role to play in this story that they were not supposed to go back and take every last thing from their harvest, but rather they were supposed to leave things behind, not go to the, every single corner of their fields, but leave that for people who had need, for the poor and for the destitute. And in this law, we see a glimpse of God's heart for all people and our responsibility to all people. That in a world that says you should squeeze every ounce out of your earnings and use it for yourself, this law reminds us sometimes we have to live for others. Sometimes we should have margin in our lives so that we can bless people who are poor, hurting, and lost. The second thing in this story that becomes a factor is Ruth's risk-taking boldness. See, this law was not really free giveaways. You, the people still had to go work the fields. This, this, this solution required that the recipients of this kindness, if they were able-bodied, they had to work for their provision. And in working for the provision, it actually did something very important. It preserved the dignity of the individual that they still were able to work. And Ruth, who is referred to as the Moabite, which we already know, so the only reason that the author says it again is to drive home the point that Ruth is a foreigner in a land in which she does not belong, she takes the initiative here to go provide for herself and for Naomi. Ruth's bold action is actually mostly remarkable because of the socioeconomic vulnerability that she has in terms of her ethnicity, that she is a Moabite, her gender, that she is a woman, and her social rank, that she is a widow foreigner. And we'll talk about that more later. But despite the risks, Ruth volunteers to set out to provide for herself and Naomi, and in doing so, she exhibits risk-taking boldness and courageous love. And I just want to say that anytime we're going to join in, you and I, if you want to join in on God's plan in this world, you're going to have to take some risks too. There's going to be some boldness and some courage required of us. And then the third thing that we see in this story, uh, and these are not, by the way, the main three points of my message. If those of you are thinking, oh, we're getting out early, let's go to brunch. Um, the, the, sorry, this is the intro. The, 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 the third thing that we see here is God's all-seeing providence. Verse 3, I love how the author says this. She set out, she gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part that was Boaz's field. And the commentators say that this is kind of like a wink-wink from the author, like she happened. Like when I go to Costco's and I happen to get to every single free sample stand, right? That's sort of like, I just happened to do that. And it's like, no, she didn't just happen there. This is a, hypo uh, this is a sort of an exaggerated irony that is pointing to the sovereignty of God, that nothing just happens. <laughs> Ruth didn't just happen to end up in Boaz's field. God's sovereign plan directed and guided her every step, all the way from Moab to Judah to Bethlehem to this field. And I wonder, when it's all said and done, we'll look back on our lives and how many times the circumstances and seasons and situations of our lives that we think they just, it just turned out that way. It just happened to be, and we'll see, no, nothing just happened. 
God is sovereign. And so now the story sort of zooms in on Ruth and Boaz, and we come across this love story that starts in a field, and there's three things that we're going to see about the story of Ruth and Boaz this morning, and these things can speak to us. If you're here this morning or if you're watching online and you've ever felt unseen or overlooked, if you've ever felt unsafe or overexposed, if you've ever felt unwanted or like an outsider, this story has something to say to you. And the first thing that we're going to see is that Ruth is noticed by Boaz. Ruth is noticed by Boaz. So Ruth is working in the fields, and Boaz comes to visit. Now, he's the boss. He's not usually in the fields, but he comes to visit, and he greets his workers with this phrase, which begins to indicate his character and his love for Yahweh. He says, the Lord be with you. It's a traditional blessing, but it's also a blessing of one of faith. And then he sees Ruth and says, who is this? And he asks this young man who's in charge, and the man says, well, she's a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi. I mean, the whole town had heard this story. And she came this morning and said, could I glean amongst you, and can I, can I get stuff for me and Naomi? And he, she's worked all morning. She's worked so hard, she's barely even taken a rest. And now in verse 8, Boaz comes to Ruth, and here's their first uh, conversation. Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter. Now this word daughter speaks of probably a a significant age gap. Uh, Ruth is certainly a woman. She's already been married, remember. She's a widow. But Boaz is probably 10 to 20 years her senior. In fact, uh, other writings back then seem to indicate that Boaz himself was probably a widower. And so he calls her my daughter. Do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Now, these young women were people who were paid to work the fields. These were not other foreigners and refugees. These were people who were part of Boaz's, uh, his home and his property. Verse 9, let your, fields be, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. He's saying, stay close to these women. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? So he's protecting her here. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, which is this indication of deep, deep, deep gratitude, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Ruth is noticed by Boaz. You know, Boaz is not normally in the fields. This is not where he normally works, but that day he just happens to come and visit And he just happens to be near where Ruth is. And he just happens to ask a servant who just happened to have spoken with Ruth that morning. And we're seeing God's sovereign work. And Ruth's words to Boaz after he shares with her all the things that he wants to provide for her conveys her gratitude. And she wonders, why would you act according to my need, not simply seeing me according to my social status as a foreigner, a sojourner, and a poor person? She says, who am I that I would deserve your favor, let alone Uh, Who am I that I would deserve your notice, that you would even look at me? Ruth is a very unimportant person, but more than being unimportant in the eyes of society back then, she actually was unacceptable to some. See, Israel's relationship with the Moabites was a complicated one at best. It went all the way back, actually, to the times of Abraham. And it really escalated during the times of Moses. And as a consequence of what happened between the Moabites and Israel in the times of Moses, a permanent ban in Deuteronomy chapter 23 was placed on the Moabites that they were never to be admitted into Israel. And so I wonder if Ruth went to the fields hoping not to be noticed. Because according to the law, she shouldn't have been there. She was not allowed in Judah. But not only is Ruth admitted into Judah and into Bethlehem, she is allowed to work the fields. Not only is she allowed to work the fields, but she receives the attention and the notice of the boss, so to speak, Boaz. And that's why she says, what kind of favor is this 
that you would notice me. Undeserved notice and favor. And this reminds me of what is written in Psalm 8, 3, where the psalmist says, when I look at heavens, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, this righteous creator, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Why would God notice us? And this morning, as Emily was sharing with us, I think a spiritual gift, a word that the spirit was speaking through her, one of the things that she said that jumped out at me is that some of you feel like God doesn't notice you. He's forgotten you. He's overlooked you. And Ruth, this story here, this moment reminds us that when God's sovereign work is happening in our lives and when his plans and purposes are being advanced in our lives, it's a reminder he notices us. He sees us. And he blesses us, not just with his notice, but with his favor. Because it's one thing to be noticed, but it's another thing to receive favor. And God notices us, and he gives us this gift of favor. Now, this really is important because, listen, if you and I don't live with a deep, abiding sense that God notices us, you know what we do? We devote all of our life and all of our energy to being noticed. And we'll do anything to be noticed in any way and at any cost. And some people live their entire lives and everything they do is to get noticed. Some people are a slave to the notice of their parents. And so for their entire lives, everything they do is hoping that their mom or their dad will notice them and be proud of them and say the magic words, I love you and I'm proud of you. And obviously that's a powerful thing, but that's also an enslavement thing to be slave to. Some people are enslaved to the notice of other people in relationships. Some people uh, live their lives and climb the career ladder so that they'll be noticed by other people. Some people use social media because that's how they want to be noticed. Some people a certain way because that's how they want to be noticed. Some people act a certain way because that's how they want to be noticed. But the scriptures teach us that God notices us. He sees us. He fills his very mind with us. And so we don't have to be a slave to being noticed. The second thing here is that Ruth is protected by Boaz. Let's go back to the chapter, verse 11. Boaz says to her, all you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. So Boaz has heard about Ruth. How you left your father and mother and your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord, he invokes again here the covenant name for the Lord. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me, comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Now, in this passage, we get some clues as to why Boaz responds to this Moabite woman the way that she does. He knows her story. He's heard about her. He knows Ruth has not just left her native land and her father's house, but that she also has left behind her foreign gods. That's why he says in verse 12, you've taken refuge under the wings of the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Boaz recognizes that Ruth has come under the wings of the Most High God, but he also brings her under his wings, so to speak, for protection. There's four things that he does here to protect her. Number one, he allows her to glean wherever she wants so she doesn't have a food insecurity, that she will always be fed, and so will Naomi. He, he instructs his servants later to leave extra behind for her. When you see Ruth behind you, be a little sloppier with your work and leave a little extra grain so that she'll get some of the best stuff. Then he told her to drink 
drink from my vessels. When you're thirsty, come to where my servants and my men are drawing water and drink so that you can be protected and whole as you work the fields. And then he even instructed the young men, I think this is said multiple times in this passage, to leave her alone, which apparently was a problem, especially for a woman this vulnerable in that society. And Boaz here takes Ruth under his wings because Boaz has a heart to protect Ruth. Now, you and I don't go to Boaz for protection, of course, but like Ruth, we can take refuge under the wings of the Lord, the Most High God. Because God desires to keep us, to sustain us, to protect us, to provide for us. Our part, listen, this is where we really struggle with receiving God's protection. Our part is the willingness to remain under his wings. <laughs> and to be under his wings is to be near his heart. And to be near his heart is to know his ways. And so, so many times we want God's protection, but we don't want to live his way. And that's simply not how the scriptural principle works out. When we live outside of the ways that God has instructed us to live, we also step out from underneath his wings. And it doesn't turn his wing into a hammer. It doesn't mean he's waiting to crush us and punish us. But it does mean that there may be some consequences that we invite into our lives. The protection of the Lord is given to us as we remain under his wing, near to his heart, knowing his ways. Jesus in Matthew 23, 37 looked over the city of Jerusalem and his heart was broken. And he said, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you, will, you were not willing. The question this morning is, are we willing to receive his protection if it means remaining under his wings? And we cannot remain under his wing of protection when we get carried away by our doubts and our worries and we are frantically and frenetically trying to protect ourselves. And these are connected, by the way. If you don't believe that the Lord notices you, you will not believe that the Lord protects you because how can God protect you if he doesn't see you where you are? And yet he sees us and he chooses, us, uh, chooses to remember us. I think it's Isaiah 49, one of the most beautiful verses probably to reference on Mother's Day, says, could a mother forget the child that is nursing at her breast? Could a mother be nursing a child and literally forget? Now, I'm sure there's some moms who have dozed off doing that, but actually forget that they have this child that they are nourishing and that they are feeding. And then the Lord, he's asking this rhetorical question to which the answer is no. A mom will not, will not forget the child that is nursing at her breast. But then he goes on to say, even if she forgets, I will not forget you. I've written your name upon my hands. You're always before me. This is a God who notices us and protects us. And if we don't believe this, by the way, we will spend all of our lives trying to protect ourselves. And the two primary ways we try to protect ourselves is either by hiding or by fighting. Hiding or fighting. And neither way leads to the life, the peace, the wholeness that God has provided for us. He protects us. He fights for us. He goes before us. You don't have to fight your own battles. And the last point this morning Pastor Antonia is going to join me up here. We're going to sing in a minute. Is that Ruth is not only noticed and protected, she is invited by Boaz. Let's finish the story. Verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. This wine would have almost been like a balsamic vinaigrette, something like that. Dip it into something to add a little acidic flavor. So she sat beside the reapers and she, he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some leftover. When she rose to glean, so she eats and now she goes back to work, Boaz instructs this young man, we mentioned this earlier, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. If she wanders into areas that she shouldn't be, let her go, he's saying. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. 
What's beautiful about the way this story transpires is that Boaz here goes beyond the law, right? We're way past what the law required of Boaz. The law just required, her to, required him to let her be there. And actually, some people could say she wasn't allowed to be there as a Moabite. So he's gone past the letter of the law. He's allowing a Moabite woman to come and to glean in his fields. But he goes beyond that because he invites her to the table for a meal. So it goes from you work and you earn and you get and you gather our leftovers to I'm going to give you my very best that's been prepared for you here. Come and sit and eat with us. It's a place not just of provision and nurture, but the table in this culture was a place of relationship and community and belonging and acceptance. And here we are reminded that we have been invited to the table of the Lord. And that the Lord invites us not just to provide for us nourishment and strength, which he does, but the Lord has invited you and you are seated at the table of God for relationship and for conversation and for community and for acceptance and belonging. The psalmist tells us that the Lord prepares a table before us even in the presence of our enemies. Even in the darkest moments of your life, there's a table being prepared so that you can rest and eat and be nourished and strengthened. And know that you're with the Father, even in the presence of your enemies. And we know at the end of scriptures, there's a great feast coming. And in every single case, at every single one of those tables, here's what's true. You and I, like Ruth, are seated where we do not belong. We're seated where we don't belong, where we don't deserve to be. There's this beautiful story. Many years later, Ruth's great-great-grandson, David, There's a story where he's risen to power. He's now the king. And the former king who tried to kill David many times, King Saul, had a grandson named Mephibosheth. And on the day that Saul and Jonathan, Jonathan was Mephibosheth's dad, died, there was an attack. And one of the maids or one of the helpers was running with Mephibosheth trying to get to safety. And she dropped him. And as a result of the fall, he was crippled for the rest of his life. And so he was in a bad spot because he was crippled, which was not a good thing in that society. There was no help available. But also he was the grandson of the former king. And in this time and in this place, the first thing a new king would do is kill all potential heirs of previous kings. So there would be no threat to the throne. And David hears about Mephibosheth, and he says, find him for me. And they find Mephibosheth, and they notice him in a place called Lodabar. Lodabar was a city nobody chose to live in. (laughs) It was the last place to go when there was nowhere else to go. It was, a, it was an outcast place. And they come to Mephibosheth and they say, King David's looking for you. He's noticed you. And I'm sure Mephibosheth thought to himself, this is it. He's found me. I'm going to be executed. This is the end of my miserable existence. But what he didn't know is that King David didn't just notice him. King David wanted to protect him. And he gave Mephibosheth back the land that had belonged to his father and his grandfather. And then he said this to Mephibosheth. He said, from this day forward, you'll take all your meals at my table, the king's table, which is the best table, the best chefs, the best foods. And Mephibosheth is seated where he doesn't belong. And this is true. This is so true of you and I. We're seated at the table of God to have relationship, to have community. We don't belong there. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it but we've been invited. The rest of the story, Ruth works, keeps working. She finishes the day with what's called an ephah of barley, which is 30 to 40 pounds of grain, which is two weeks worth of supply for Naomi and Ruth. She brings it home and Naomi's like, oh my goodness, you went to Costco's, didn't you? Like, look at at all this. How, How did you get this much stuff? And she simply says, it's a man named Boaz. 
And Naomi goes, I know that name. Look at how the story ends, verse 20. Naomi says to Ruth, May he, speaking of Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours. He is one of our redeemers. He's one of our redeemers. Now, Naomi's hope is being restored. She can begin to see now that the Lord is not against me, that the Lord is for me. The kinsman redeemer, we're going to learn a lot more about this in the next two weeks, but the kinsman redeemer's role was to help recover the loss of family members, tribes. Whether those losses were human, in which case he was supposed to hunt down the killer, judicial, in which case he was supposed to assist with lawsuits, or economic, in which case he could recover the property of a family member. To be a kinsman redeemer was to take responsibility for the losses of someone else. And Boaz is the kinsman redeemer in this story. But as we continue to read in scriptures, we see that we have a true and better kinsman redeemer. There's a greater kinsman redeemer who took on the losses of others to secure our future for us. See, Jesus, he settles our scores. He's the redeemer. He paid our sins. He recovers our losses. Everything that was lost, he restores, he redeems, he repurposes. And some days we'll, someday we will see the way in which he did this. And then Jesus not only settles our score, he not only recovers our losses, but he speaks up for us in the courtroom of heaven before the Father. He is our advocate, and he speaks for us so that we can have the invitation of the Father. I want us to finish. I want, I want to read this paragraph to you that I came across this week in my studies. I thought it was so helpful and true. Maybe you would just bow your heads and close your eyes as I read this in closing. Jesus so identified with weak sinners that he impoverished himself in order to make us rich. Like Boaz and Ruth, Jesus, or unlike Boaz and Ruth, Jesus does not merely give us bread. He is our bread. He welcomes us at his banqueting table and nourishes, nourishes us with his own body and blood, having pardoned our sin through his substitutionary sacrifice. Never has this world seen more scandalous vulnerability or kindness than in Christ. Boaz, yes, is a worthy man, but the Lord Jesus is the worthiest of them all. There is none so noble, none so gentle, none so dignifying, none so kind. In all of our vulnerability, we can take refuge under his wings, knowing that Jesus will not only deal kindly with us, but he will also transform us as his instruments of kindness toward others, all for his glory.